Words have wings, and they fly as they please. Rhetoric has a role in how we treat one another. We use winged words. Once they take flight, we really have no control over where they might land. In our series, Reframe, today, I want to talk a little bit about the power of words and the power that they carry not only in our personal life, but in our public life as well. I've noticed over the last several years that our public discourse has become more aggressive, and it seems as though words are being used as weapons more than ever. We're a little over a week away from midterm elections, and I don't know about you, but I'm already exhausted by the winged words that fly around. There are things that are said that we really have no way of knowing what is true or what is false. That's the frustrating part of it. I remember Walter Cronkite when I was a kid, primarily because of that look that he had and that voice that he had. Each night he would come into people's homes and he would present what he felt was a fair and balanced representation of the news that had happened that day. Walter Cronkite once said, in seeking truth, you have to get both sides of the story. And each night he would sign off the same way, with this line. And that's the way it is. You know, we can no longer say that today, no matter what your favorite news channel is. It seems today we don't have news anchors, we have news actors that act on behalf of their corporation's interests. And that's why stories are tainted and slighted in various directions. Things that are presented in such a way are usually a mirage for manipulative purposes. And usually there's money behind it in one way or the other. And so when you listen to words, and I listen to words, we always have to have our radar up to kind of sense whether what we are being told is half a truth or three-quarters of a truth or no truth or full truth. Well, what happens in the everyday world as you turn on the TV also happens in church. You know, religious rhetoric is something that is often used to control people as well. If you haven't noticed, words within church have specialized meanings. And they may be new to you or you might have grown up with them, so you kind of know the code. Church words have these nuances to them that sometimes leaves people confused. And sometimes when an individual might walk into a church for whatever reason, they might hear language that they have no clue as to what is being said or what the implications are of it because language in general changes in its meaning, but not religious words all that much. Sometimes we still use religious rhetoric in the same way as it was used years and years and years ago. 
And sometimes that creates a gap, doesn't it, between people who have a working knowledge of that vocabulary versus people who have no knowledge of it. You know, there is a hurdle that we all face when we think about the words we hear and the words that we use. For example, if I want to describe for you an animal that has four legs, a long tail, and uses a litter box, I would use the word cat, right? But if you went someplace else in the world and you said the word cat, they wouldn't associate it with that same animal with a long tail and four legs and using a litter box. You know, there's a different word for cat in Spanish and Croatian and German. and So words depend on other words is what I'm trying to say. It depends upon what language we are speaking, and it depends upon what is being described and what becomes kind of the social norm that this is the word that we use for the word cat, C-A-T. You know, there isn't an intrinsic connection to this animal because if there was, it would be named the same all around the world. It's connected to other things. And in English, we have decided to use the word cat, C-A-T, to describe an animal that has a tail and a disdain for human beings at times. <laughs> in English, if we wanted to change the name of this animal, we could call it a crank. And what we find is over time, we would adapt to it, right? And we would learn to use that word to associate with that animal. What I'm saying is language is always changing, but religion, a lot of times, is built on outdated language. And it's impossible to escape this tendency that the world has moved forward, but religion has stayed behind. Therefore, Christianity often is spoken in code, and you have to know the code to know what is being said. The rhetoric of religion involves often propagating and reinforcing and teaching and forming theological beliefs and structures. And often within religion, what happens is the rhetoric of religion is to convince other people to use the same language as you are using. And we use a specialized word to describe that as well. We call it evangelism. Rather than pointing to the love of God that we sang about, we often put all kinds of different adjectives connected to the love of God because this religious rhetoric that we, maybe we grew up with has always described the love of God or the wrath of God in this particular way. Now, while all religions do this, and we talked a little bit about various religions in this series, but for the remainder of the time I have with you, I want to talk in particular about what I call straight white American Christianity. Language is a form of identity. And in American history, religion is famously sort of a core identity 
to millions and millions of our citizens. And specialized language uh, convinces us that this nation that we call our home was a Christian nation from the very start because it used certain types of language. Many people often assume that the United States, because it began with people coming to this new land looking for religious liberties, and we talk about that here in the month of November when we talk about Thanksgiving, yet at the same time, our nation was as much of a mix of different types of people as it is right now. Yet, this core identity of a religious nation kind of puts us forward to thinking that somehow God was involved in founding this land, and we have this privileged status of living where we live. In other words, what I'm trying to say is American Christians, like members of other social groups, often mark their identity. We're a Christian nation, and therefore, we should let Christianity rule over other religions, even though freedom of religion was part of our founding documents for all religions, not just Christianity. So what's interesting to me is how language takes over. And this language then splinters to even more specialized language. Here's what I mean. You're not just Christian, you're Baptist. You're not just Christian, you're Lutheran. You're not just Christian, you're Methodist. You're, you see what I'm saying? Language is used to continue many times to narrow the circle to a privileged group. You know, if a person does not adopt the language of other people or groups, then they're considered to be outsiders, okay? It's the people that take on the same rhetoric that are insiders, and then they are the ones that are accepted. And those that are not familiar with or don't use the same lingo sometimes then are not only looked as outsiders, but if we want to be judgmental about it, we could say, oh, they're those heathens, those pagans, you know, those depraved individuals. And all of that is using language to kind of reinforce our sense of privilege. We've got the inside scoop, insider trading type thing. We've got the inside information. And people then who use that as their identity flag can often then subtly, or maybe not so subtly, say to other people who don't fit that description, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome here. I think the most dangerous part of religious rhetoric is the hatred and the judgmentalism that sometimes comes with it. And throughout history, Christians have been especially susceptible to this. When you think about religious rhetoric and how it's used, it has caused numerous atrocities. Think about the Crusades, 
the cruelty of the Spanish Inquisition, the colonialism of an entire population, the theft of discovering new lands, the genocide of indigenous people, slavery, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, sexism, and the list could go on. It's interesting to me that Christianity gained a huge sense of power all the way back in the 4th century when a man by the name of Constantine actually used religious rhetoric to justify the battle that he would win and make Rome uh, subject to Christianity. Christianity would become the state religion. And with that came all kinds of power rather than service. All of that uh, brought about prejudice and uh, other things that came along with it. I don't think that's what Jesus really had in mind when he looked at Peter and said, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. You know, propaganda often caters to selfishness. And religious rhetoric often blames and oppresses other people rather than serving other people. It doesn't view everyone as loved by God or made in God's divine image. And sometimes, especially Christian propaganda, will then justify the mistreatment of other people because we're God's chosen. I think it misses the point. I think when we use religious language that way, we can often say things like, hey, keep those people out. Deport them, ban them, incarcerate them, discriminate against them, outlaw them, rather than serving, loving, and showing the love of God. Jesus spoke out against the dangers of religious rhetoric. Most poignantly, in Matthew chapter 23, he picks out a group of leaders called the Pharisees, and he says, woe to you, a, a number of different times. But here's what I want to do, is give you a second parable. So I gave you one earlier. And this one actually comes out of the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, there's an insider and there's an outsider. And the insider acts a particular way and uses a particular kind of rhetoric, but the outsider uses a whole different language. Now, this is a parable, but I'm sure that this is something that could have actually happened in the temple precinct. So in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, Jesus says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So this is how Luke prefaced this parable that Jesus told on an occasion. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Now listen to his religious rhetoric. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Makes no reference to the Pharisee, just talking about himself. Then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's think through that for a second. So Jesus tells this story of two men. One is a Pharisee, one that knew the code, one that knew how to use the religious language, one that felt righteous, one that actually did good things. Talked about him giving a tenth of his income to the temple. Talked about him fasting. Talked about him praying. All these religious things. On the other hand, there's a tax collector. And the tax collectors were especially looked down upon by Jewish people because tax collectors were individuals that sold out to the Roman Empire. You see, in Jesus' day, Rome conquered territory, but they often felt that the best way to extract taxes out of those that they had conquered was to take some of the population of the conquered people and put them in the position of being a tax collector. And so different people would actually bid on the opportunity to be a tax collector. The Romans would say, this area should produce this much income to our empire. And the tax collectors would bid on this and say, I can get that much, and I can even get more. And if they were able to collect enough to pay off the Roman taxes, anything that they collected over and above that, they would keep. And some of them could become very wealthy in the process. But they would manipulate people and strong-arm people and... They were kind of like mafia figures that would threaten people if they didn't continue not only to pay the right amount of taxes, but to pay over and above what they should have paid. This tax collector somehow was convicted in his heart. Maybe what he was doing was wrong to his fellow citizens, his fellow Jewish people. He goes to the temple and he sees the Pharisee over there. And he realizes that this man, the Pharisee, is looked upon with great favor by the people because of all the religious things that this Pharisee did. The tax collector knew that these same people would look down on him 
and probably would say ban him, get rid of him. He doesn't belong in the temple area. What we find is that he stands at a distance. And he won't even look up to heaven. And in great humility, he doesn't compare himself to the Pharisee. He doesn't compare himself to the peasants. He just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus stops the parable right there. The Pharisee has all this religious rhetoric down, and he's even hiding behind it. But the tax collector is an individual that just throws himself on the love of God. And it is there. Jesus said, one of these men went home justified in the eyes of God, and the other did not. But he didn't name them. Did you notice that in the parable? He never says, it's the tax collector that goes home justified. But that's what he's implying. So the people have a choice to make. Are they going to continue to listen to the religious rhetoric of the Pharisee? Or are they going to look at the heart of the tax collector? Luke makes a big deal about this in his gospel. He always picks out people that seem to be on the margins, the outsiders. And he talks about how they come to Jesus healing. They come to Jesus for a blessing upon their situation. And what we find is Jesus is always open to them. And he's always ministering to them. And he's never shunning them. He's never rejecting them. But the Pharisees had a different attitude toward the populace because the populace was to be used for their own personal gains. And Jesus would often be in conflict with the Pharisees because of that very thing. You know, when we think about religious rhetoric, I understand specialized words can say something succinctly. But at the same time, religious rhetoric often can be used in such a way to keep the people that actually have a heart to know God and to find God away. I want to give you an example of religious rhetoric that is used quite often. And it's a phrase, and I could give you dozens of them that we've used over the years, but I want to use this one in particular. And here's the phrase, the religious rhetoric. I know you've heard it. Love the sinner and hate the sin. We've all heard that, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. And it's one of those cliches that is often used to create a religious veneer. The veneer is this, God loves the sinner, but he hates his sin, and therefore this sinner better get himself right with God. But me, I'll love the sinner because God tells me to love the sinner. But couched in those words is the rhetoric 
I'm actually better than you are. I'm religious. I got my faith together. Uh, I do all these special things, i.e., just like the Pharisee, right? But I look down on someone who doesn't know the language, doesn't know the code, doesn't use the religious lingo, doesn't do all the things that I tell him to do. And so rhetoric often might have a kernel of truth to it. God does love the sinner. God hates what sin does in people's lives. The chaos it causes. The conflict it causes. But it's a whole different thing to puff yourself up with self-righteousness and say, well, I'm loving you because God says, love the sinner but hate the sin. What that really is, is a way of exalting ourselves. What most people don't understand is that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, was not used in the church until it became a bullseye put on the backs of LGBT. And it was a way of targeting a group of people and saying we love them, but in reality, we don't want them. We'd rather exclude them. We'd rather shun them. We would rather use them for our own political purposes. It's selective application. Now, you know what's heard, and here's our challenge. When we started this church, we wanted to reach out to people who have been hurt by the church because of things like religious rhetoric. And it has not been an easy thing to reach out, especially to the LGBTQ community, because, and I don't blame them, they can't trust us, or at least trust those that use a lot of the religious veneer and rhetoric. So our challenge is to let it be seen more than to let it be said. In other words, first is to love my neighbor as myself and to show it. As we move up to McKinley, it's not just the LGBT community, but Around McKinley are people that have a lot of needs. And these needs can be met with disdain or judgmentalism. Or these needs can be seen as an opportunity to love and to accept and to serve. And I hope that whatever we do in the weeks, months, and years ahead is that, you know, religious rhetoric and judgmentalism can give us a temporary high. 
because it makes us feel good about ourselves. But in the end, it builds walls and not bridges. So let's make it a determined effort to share the love of God and offer the kingdom of God. Not an identity flag or not a specialized privileged group, but just a group like us. People that have found God, accepted it. And we want to sing it like we did in the song, that it's available to all people. You know, Mahatma Gandhi wrote in his autobiography, and I quote, Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. So religious rhetoric often blinds us to ourselves, and it often causes us to be prejudiced toward other people. And I think what we need to understand is that God's flock is huge, and God's flock is filled with all kinds of people from every walk of life. And I hope that if you're listening to this on YouTube or some other venue, you'll understand that life is a gift and love is the point, and we have the opportunity to do it together, no matter who you are or where you're from. And it is here you will find openness and acceptance and affirming attitude. So I wanted to use this message just to talk about reframing the way we use religious language. Let's be careful with it. Because we want it to be a source of healing and not hurt, right? So if we can do that, let's move next week to our new venue and start all over again with the opportunity to show the love of God. Would you stand with me as we close? I want to close with these words from Mother Teresa. She says, kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. May we continue to echo the love of God out of our own life into the lives of others, not with an agenda, but out of a pure heart. Reread that parable again out of Luke 18. Let's ask God for us to be the tax collector and not Lord God, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the privilege of these dear brothers and sisters meeting with us here. And thank you, Father, for those that might watch later online. Give to us a humble spirit. Give to us a serving attitude. And help us to continue, no matter what prison walls we have found ourselves in, to find the words that we saw and sang earlier. That indeed the love of God is greater far than what we could ever imagine. And so help us to rest in the love of God and help us to share. In Jesus' name I pray.
Thanks again for coming. God bless you. See you next week. Have a good week.